Ah, spring. Nothing like the world progressing towards summer to inspire your own progress. That's what life's all about, in your career, relationships, and your finances. Let's talk about that last one. With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, it's easy to start building credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments with no annual fees or interest. So your weekly grocery run can feel even more productive, and that morning coffee can taste like a little victory. And if your credit scores grow, so could your opportunities to get lower rates on loans, like for a new ride or finally having a home to call your own. Sounds like progress, right? With Chime's Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started today at chime.com build. That's chime.com build. Chime feels like progress. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to chime.com disclosures for details. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus. You can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. your host, Andrew Donaldson. This is Heard Tell. Ah, welcome back to Heard Tell. She hadn't been here for a while. She's been very, very busy, but we're glad we got her down to start the new year off here on Heard Tell. Alice Watson-Brown, one of our favorites, Young Voices contributor, University of Bristol graduate. How are you, my friend? I'm very well, Andrew. I'm so happy to be back on the show. Uh, It has been too long, and I'm excited just for a a good light conversation about you know what's most important and going on in the world. Yeah, because there's nothing major going on there. Or no, here, or it's kind of boring. <laughs> Hardly. I actually want to start right there because we talk to our UK friends all the time. It's been a tumultuous year in the UK. Politics, different prime ministers, the cost of living crisis that doesn't look like it's it's probably going to get worse before it gets better. I think that's a fair way to put it. You're going to have some sometime in the next year, year and a half, you're going to have another election. So who knows how that goes. But here's how I want to ask this, because there's no way. Let's even back up a couple of years to the Brexit stuff. Your generational cohort, that, that 20 to 30 year old group, the, the part that just went through college, that graduated school about the time Brexit happened. Now they're coming out of college in the middle of this cost of living crisis. There's no way that's having not having a cultural and political shift on your generation is there absolutely not as a young person so i i'm 22 uh i graduated a few months ago um so i was 16 when brexit happened and then that was sort of my formative political experience i guess and um i didn't really i would kind of just remember 2010 with the coalition and how that was shock horror and then it was just sort of when i came to my political maturity it just seemed to be you know, a historical event after historical event. Um, and now having gone through Brexit and COVID uh, and the impact that COVID especially has had on the economy, 
um i would say that that the economy is our biggest concern with young people um and culturally that means none of us are moving out none of us can afford to really buy a house in the short term um even though interest rates are quite stable um the prices they're just too high um so it's not fun at the moment unless you're a very lucky person and you do manage to fall onto that dream grad job um and get your sort of 60k a year you're balling you're doing great um but i guess and we look back i look back on my education uh, as a sort of the class of covid um i wasn't sort of in the midst of it but i lost 18 months of of university and i think what was it all for i went through schooling i i abided to the standardized testing um in a very competitive atmosphere i was lucky enough to i went to one of the top schools in the country a boarding school and then a pretty you know respectable university i was a very i had a very lucky educational upbringing and where am i at the moment um without sounding too existential i have no prospect of moving out um i'm struggling to get a job my elder siblings haven't yet moved out um and pretty much everyone i know is in the same situation and the government is not doing anything to help us apart from just you know their main focus is the nhs they can't pin their workers down they can't pin rail strikes they yeah we're just being thrusted by all these things that means we are being swept under the net aside from the fact that we're expected to be caught up in these culture wars and be on either side of something the whole time one side of an argument we're either woke or anti-woke left or right um pro-trans anti-trans all of that it's sort of i don't want to complain too much but it's kind of exhausting um <laughs> and but yeah i think at the moment my main worry and you know the conversations you have with your friends when you go to the pub uh after a day of day of work or not work or whatever that's all you talk about is how poor you are and how much you want to move out and as much as we love our parents we're old we're too we're too old to be living with them um and it doesn't feel like there's any going to be any future respite for that apart from just keeping on going yeah alice watson brown joining us that's the part i'm driving at because i can go back i'm a little bit older than you not much <laughs> um i can go back we can look at like you know the recession of the 2008 2009s we can go mm -hmm. back to the late 90s there's political change when there's economic turmoil especially to young folks because it hits them differently i noticed in my own children my younger children that were in high school primary school for y'all you know those later grades it really changed how they saw education they didn't see school as something they go and do anymore they really saw it as a government institution because it got shut down and took away from them for 15 months or at least my kids did. it completely changed how they saw education they see school as a government entity now that's going to change how they see the rest of their lives so for your cohort COVID is unique because it's not just you it's so many people that's going to change how you see government it's going to change how you see politics it sees how you change how you see economics the folks that are arguing the political stuff in the uk i really wonder how much it's hitting the next generation because in 10 years when y'all are the dominant force you're going to cross a lot of those old traditional lines the old playbook isn't really going to fit you all that well is it no i i agree and i think it, it's good to hear that you know from your own children that they saw it as a a government institution it, it was as much of a chore as paying taxes if that makes sense and i can't remember who wrote it i think it was joseph piper he said that in you know not verbatim but education and leisure are, are one i think the origin of the word school 
you know, there, there was creativity and fun in that original meaning of the word. And there isn't anymore. It's, and there wasn't. It was just kind of like, oh yeah, we, you know, you're allowed to be here now. So you better do really well. And we we're going to examine you in the exact same way before, you know, you had your classrooms taken away from you and you had your in-person time taken away from you. And you can't complain. What are you on about? Um, and you're still going to be expected to adhere to the same standards as always people before you. Um, and that is just quite hard to come to grips with because you always have a certain sense of trust to those people who mentor you academically and those who teach you. I always did. Um, and that was sort of taken away. I didn't end up really respecting the people, the institutions all that much, which is bad. I don't want to feel like that, but it's true. Um, yeah. That quote makes me think of the Robin Williams quote where he's explained politics. He said, poly from the Latin word for many and ticks, meaning blood sucking parasite. <laughs> um, but, you know, when you're coming out of, you know, the education, whether it's there or America, one thing, you know, education up through college, it's a system. It's a conveyor belt. You're expected. OK, go through all these steps. You mentioned it earlier. Like, look, we did all that. I heard this from my own child. You, I did everything right. I did all the steps they told me to do. They didn't hold up their end. Like it, that really is like a primal thing that changes. That's also a dangerous thing because now you're, you're not talking about a policy change. You're talking about people that have built in resentment now. And I don't think you're just going to be able to policy change that away. No, it's, it's creating a general consensus of revolutionary politics, I suppose, rather than reactionary and that, about what can we conserve that was good for us, for our children than us just feeling like we need to tip this over and just start again because it's just useless. Um, and whilst I do kind of think that in the UK, especially our way of examining people, and this was before COVID, to be fair, uh, our, our examination systems, I think, was flawed um, hugely. Um, but these people, even <laughs> they did everything right, as you say, they followed their steps. And some of them, poor people, weren't even allowed to take the exams that they were promised to show what people what they could do. They just said, oh, no, like people are too ill. You can't show up to take your test, which will actually define where you go to college, where you go for the rest of your life, what you can study. Um, and that is awful. That is one entire trench of influence of your life just taken away from you. And that is completely out of your control. And that's not fair. And especially was the reason why I wanted to bring up the um, essay bot, the sort of AI. Um, you know, it's that if this whole thing comes in the context that literacy rates in the UK and the US are shocking at the moment. I think it's something like uh, in the UK, I think three quarters of white boys fail to meet the literacy standards in the UK. And I think something in the US, it's like uh, around 54% of adults fall below sixth grade literacy rates, which is A, costly to the economy and B, what are we doing to our children? Why are we not worrying about this and instead letting them watch porn the entire time um, and making them think that that's real? Why, why are we not encouraging them to write stories, to play with Lego, to build things? To And why are we bothered about how they identify about their outward expression rather than their inward monologue with themselves and how they how they teach themselves how to make mistakes gracefully or however Jordan Peterson puts it. But it's to me so wrong and now there's this whole thing where you don't even need to work to write your essays it's this um new story i think that came out it's this bot called chat gpt 
um, and it can write pretty coherent mid-grade essays for you um, for free. You don't even need to pay for it. And I think the Daily Telegraph, actually, they paid a teacher to mark an essay written by this bot. And they said, you know, it wasn't sophisticated, but it was very coherent. And uh, this tech is only going to get more advanced. And uh, whilst I'm not against, you know, ed tech, it's a huge market in the UK, as I'm sure it is in the US, and how it helps, you know, people all across the world get a better education with more resources. Um, this is, why aren't people concerned about this? Alongside all these other trends, and I think it has been lost, it has been suffocated uh, alongside all the other parts of the culture war. But this is going to be our greatest casualty, and we're not going to notice it for a long time. But when we do, we'll have no one but ourselves to blame. Ah, spring. Nothing like the world progressing towards summer to inspire your own progress. That's what life's all about in your career, relationships, and your finances. Let's talk about that last one. With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, it's easy to start building credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments with no annual fees or interest. So your weekly grocery run can feel even more productive and that morning coffee can taste like a little victory. And if your credit scores grow, so could your opportunities to get lower rates on loans, like for a new ride or finally having a home to call your own. Sounds like progress, right? With Chime Secured Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started today at Chime.com build. That's Chime.com build. Chime. Feels like progress. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by Bancorp Bank NA or Stride Bank NA, members FDIC. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com disclosures for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, Alice Watson Brown joining us. It links to that literacy thing you just said because we've got the data on the COVID stuff in the US. I don't know about the UK numbers. In the US, the thing that got hurt the most was math and reading. Some mm -hmm. of these kids are two years behind on reading now, and we have further data. Uh, we covered it on the show a couple of weeks ago. Early literacy programs are the one thing that, yeah, they're expensive. Yes, we sink a lot of money into them, but it's also one of the few things that we actually got data that it works really well. Early mm -hmm. literacy, that's one of the things that carries through. The problem with this is in the U.S. education system is we've lost literacy, not because we don't teach reading, but the entire of the education system is built towards standardized testing. We're teaching kids how to take a test instead of teaching kids how to learn and it kills their literacy. So the reason that literacy piece and that bot piece you're just talking about where the look, the bot, that technology has a lot of good to it. People with mm -hmm. disabilities, people working in second and third languages, people um, trying to get, you know, you think of people that are nonverbal that could maybe yeah. use that and open their world up. That has a lot of good things. But when you start tempting something like that to people who have not been correctly educated and they know they've got to pass these essays and these tests, 
that's a bad combination and it's just rife for abuse and and it and it's just going to further hurt the education system it's going to hurt the education system and the pupils who they claim to serve um and what do we have to do with that these people are going to hopefully be leading this country but our countries the world um and you know people do you really want a kid who said oh yeah i didn't actually write any of my essays when it comes to these the, the learning how to write and the learning how to read this should be a common currency across the world and we're losing that that was the main thing how we measured you know women's rights and women's education was how many people can read and how many people can write and how many people can do maths where is that where's that gone but yeah and and going back to the sort of post-covid um factor about literacy rates being behind there are pockets of students in the uk who just haven't returned to school they don't they're, they're missing um i don't have the exact figures and i don't want to chuck one out of thin air but it's it's concerning um and that has cropped up in mainly kind of right-leaning uh, media outlets um over the last few months but i don't know if it's the same in the u.s but this is worrying and these children are from vulnerable households from abusive parents um you know low income mainly uh in the uk it's mainly concentrated in the northern regions um and some left-wing papers have blamed that on brexit which i find nonsensical i couldn't really see a coherent link between their arguments um but it's no coincidence that if you don't tell kids to come to school they won't do it made to just write essays like a machine and not yeah. actually getting any feedback that's universal kids don't want to go to school unless you make them alice watson brown joining us it's the same here look the stats were bad when you start talking about disparaging people groups minorities uh, lower income, lower income, you go, the stats get worse. I mean, mm. it's just an arguably, those are the people that got left behind because the people with means found way, you know, they could get tutors, they could link up. I, I know in my home state of West Virginia, they had to put Wi-Fi rigs and buses and run them up and down the hollers and park them at a Walmart. And then everybody would go to the Walmart to the bus to get on Wi-Fi because there's not enough broadband. You know, you start talking about issues like that, we talk about education, especially in America. I don't know how it is in England. Basically, like if we just write enough money and we make the system big enough, it's going to fix itself. And we know that's not the truth because of the things you're just saying. And I'm coming when I worked in the corporate world, it was starting to get like this. And now it's really getting like this. We have all these college degreed people, but they're having trouble getting jobs because everybody's got a college degree now that are the same and they don't have a real skill set that sets them apart anymore. And I, I worry that what's just happened in the UK, you're going to start having that same problem there with the way the testing and the, the way y'all do the test outs or whatever you call them. I forget the term. The way y'all do that now, when you do that COVID scrunch of putting everybody together, you're going to have the same problem. All those people are in the same bucket fighting for a, a lesser and lesser jobs that are out there. This is a real problem, and it's a call to reevaluate how we're doing education, but we're not looking at it that way. We're just looking at it as a political problem. I agree, and it shouldn't be politicized. And I think when you were saying, um, mentioning hard, like skills, like hard skills, I also I don't think that we're being taught hard skills in school. We're not being taught. I think what's valuable now is being taught how to set up a dropshipping business so you can make money alongside, you know, uni or so you can fund your studies or you can fund a you know a three-week course in how to code python that's going to make you instantly more employable um how can i fund you know my own shop on shopify so i can at least learn how to sell i can learn how to talk to people and i can learn how to sell and i can learn how to negotiate um and i can learn how to walk back with more money in my pocket though those are the kind of things that i think some people are encouraging um 
you know, that like self-reliance and entrepreneurship. I think that's really important. But the fact that it's our only option now, really, to make ourselves feel fulfilled is sad. Um, yeah, I think there are now a lot of courses online that are teaching you how to, you know, how you can become a dropshipping master or a forex trader in two weeks and things like that. There are more and more scams online, of course, you know, these sort of get rich quick at home. Um, but a lot of people are doing that. A lot of my friends, you know, are, are nomads now um, and they're enjoying it. Don't get me wrong. But these are people who you, from the schools they went to and the grades they got, you would expect would be flying high without any effort. Alice Watson Brown joining us. That's something I wonder about too, is you just mentioned it. Normally, you know, the folks that go to the better schools and do the certain career paths, they're expected to go into high finance, big business, mm -hmm. politics, civil service, whatever. Is there going to be a brain drain in the UK from this? Because I think in the COVID area in America, with the way the government's going and some of those things, I think we're seeing a bit of a brain drain in government and politics because a lot of the quote-unquote good people don't want to fool with the mess and that's always kind of been a joke but i think we got some data to back it up now is that a fear in the uk with all the chaos and now like you just said they're having these nomad things they may go find something that they really like to do that is not that traditional career path that's going to be a brain drain on not only government and civil service over there but the country as a whole i agree i think um I think you sort of touched on the phrase, it's like the best people don't go into politics. And I don't know who said that, but it's something that's, you know, I, I say to a lot of people, um, I, there was there is no viable alternative, really. There's no viable political future for the UK. Uh, even when, you know, Boris Johnson was going out of office, we were like, oh, let's just come along. But there was no kind of one person we were like, you know, we're, we're it's, it's three nil down and we've got two minutes to go. We're going to get him in or her in. There was no one person who we would... He, he was the forerunner of this um and a lot of people say to me like oh you why why not why don't you go into politics like the, obviously you, you'd love to go and I was like I I'm 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 you know I'm just as bad as a lot of other people who just say I don't want to touch that I don't want to do it because a you don't I don't know how much change you would make and b I can't be bothered for the optics the the hate that's going to come just for trying um the, the sort of the echo chamber that you have to engage with now of social media if you want to put your name out there and that I guess that comes with the job but I don't know it's um I hope it's not right but when you were talking about the civil service in the UK interestingly um because we've now realized that we are, have such a bloated bureaucracy uh we're just creating jobs and throwing money at it like you said about the US education system hoping they would solve things. Um, people have now caught on that that isn't the way and they're slashing positions in the civil service at the moment. Um, but that's not the way with other state institutions like the NHS. Interestingly, a lot of my friends who have landed graduate jobs are in the health service management schemes, not in the civil service, not in GCHQ um, or any other kind of like traditional sort of high flying occupation. 
Alice Watson Brown joining us. It's a little different in the UK than here, but there there's a common theme I'm hearing, and I see it in your look. I watch PMQs just about every Wednesday. I'm I'm pretty up on the UK politics, but I see a common theme there that's here. There just seems to be a lot of frustration without any outlet for it, and I don't want to get you know doomsaying about it. But the UK's got some real issues, and we've got some real issues here. We've got a couple of years, the next two years, and then this this next election cycle in the U.S. This is going to be very contentious because we've got a divided Congress. We've got a presidential election coming. This is going to be some ugly stuff for a while. The U.K. looks like they're – usually you have these pretty stable premierships where you get three, four, five, six-year runs. That's not going to happen. It doesn't look like Sunak's going to get too far into next year without having to have some kind of an election. That'll be four in about 18 months, give or take. Let's just ballpark it. That's not normal instability for the UK. How does that land with the people though? They've got, I know at the end of the Brexit, it was just, okay, it's over. We almost don't even care which way, just make mm -hmm. it go away, right? Is it getting to be that way with parliament and the premiership right now? Because it seems like it feels like from the outside, folks are just kind of sick of this rut that the parliament and the prime minister and the revolving door are in right now. I think so. It, it, it's, it's, a, it's a rut of epic proportions, um, I would say. Uh, I think, the trail of leadership since Boris Johnson, so you had Liz Truss, who tried to be radical, but the one rule about being radical is that you have to be reassuring in order to succeed. And she wasn't reassuring. Uh, it was a bulldozing, blundering, you know, trying to be Margaret Thatcher kind of performance caricature, which failed, obviously. And then you have Rishi Sunak. He's quieter, more reassuring, but fluffy, no personality, sort of disliked by a lot of the conservative grassroots because of his role in COVID and lockdown. Um, in essence, the Conservative Party now has fallen into the trap of its Labour counterpart and that it doesn't know what it stands for. I spoke about the Labour problem, I think, in the last podcast, but um, I think that their main identity crisis now is over taxation. Are you a party of high taxation or low tax? It's not a, it's not a difficult question to answer. And because they created the mess in which they had to raise taxes, they are now at an utter loss at which string to grasp to pull themselves forwards. It, it It's fascinating to watch, albeit depressing. Um, it's fascinating. And uh, there's now sort of on the edge, or is there's the tension of is Nigel Farage going to return to politics? Is he going to make this grand re-entry for, you know, leave the GB News studio and come in and save everyone. Um, a lot of Tory MPs are scared they'll lose their seats if he does. Um, but I I have no faith in that really ensuing anything different either. It'll just be new crisis, different day. Yeah, I'm, I don't know that gasoline on the fire is what's called for here. I don't know if that's a British <laughs> saying or not, but it certainly is where I am. That will be one hot mess. But unfortunately, here's the problem. And, and again, we're not even talking specific politics here. We're just talking big picture here. People get sick of it. People have bandwidth. People can only take so much, even with parties they agree with and ideologies they agree with. That's when you really have trouble, though, is when people start tuning out and they just start going, just make it stop and go away. That's when the really bad, ugly stuff happens. And that's why we need to be vigilant both in the UK with whatever happens in your next election and us with what's going to be happening here. That's when you really got to be vigilant because when people are going, no, 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 just make it stop. That's when the untoward actors start really working their stuff and be like, oh, I'll make it all better. Listen to me. This is the time we got to really hold on to our principles and pay attention to what's going on even more so as hard as it is. I agree. That's the time when accountability goes out the window and populism becomes your best friend. 
it's, as you say, pouring fuel on the fire. Um, I have no idea what really will ensue in the next general election in the UK. Uh, I imagine the Conservatives will lose their majority. Um, whether that means they are not going to be the largest party is a different question. Uh, I have a feeling they will remain the largest party because Labour have not yet made a stand that has made them attractive to Conservative voters who can cross enemy lines, in my opinion. Um, but I don't know. The problem is also is that I think in the U I was reading US news today as well, that as well, the politicians seem to be fighting between themselves more than their more than the public. And that seems to me wrong. Uh, it, it should be the other way around. Um, I think it wasn't it. So the Republicans are taking back the House and now they want to launch an inquiry on Joe Biden and COVID uh, about Hunter Biden's laptop. And you think obviously these are, you know, these could be pretty big wedge issues. But it seems to me that rather than as soon as the other side gets in, rather than building and carving their own future for that, you know, for their beliefs, they're just trying to make it look like the guy before them did a worse job than they're going to do. What kind of a system is that? It's it's not appealing. It's not attractive, and it's discouraging any you know attractive talent from joining you. Um, and it's you know it, it's not durable. No, and they better Alice Watson Brown join us. They better do some. I've been writing about this, and it, even really hardcore folks on the right that really understand it are like, no, you better do some governing because remember our Congress. You're up every two years. We could have this really absurd thing where we flip the Senate and the Congress both right mm. back again in two years. Be interesting to watch Alice Watson Brown. I love talking these bigger picture cultural stuff because it's important because, you know, this is the stuff that, you know, like we're talking about the, the generational cohorts. And this is stuff in 10 years. People are going to be like, oh, how did this get this way? And we can go back and go like, look, we were already talking about it. So it's good to talk to you about these things. Uh, we always enjoy having you back on the program. We will have you back on the program in 2023. Lord willing, and the creek don't rise. That's another American <laughs> saying. We don't know. Y'all need to adopt that one, too. Probably. Um, <laughs> Uh, let folks know where they can follow you and keep up with you. Um, you can even pitch your Spotify account if you want to. I know you're all into the fashion stuff. But let folks know where they can keep up with you until we get you back on Hertel again. Yeah, so my Twitter handle is just at Alice Watson Brown. Uh, no, A-L-Y-S Watson Brown. Uh, I will be posting more there occasionally now. I have been radio silent, probably because I'm losing faith, which is bad. So we're going to keep our principles and we're going to keep investing. <laughs> But thank yeah. you so much for having me on. It's been such a pleasure, and I really hope to see you soon. I do, too. That's why we do Twitter Supper Club, though. Put the food on there. Let's yeah. get our faith and humanity back in there. <laughs> Alice Watson-Brown, you're great, my friend. Talk to you soon. Thank you for the time. Thank you, and you too, and Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Religion is at the intersection of our 21st century life, even if we don't express a faith. At a time when it seems that religion isn't as prevalent as it once was, it still leaves its mark everywhere. 
As a pastor, I know that religion isn't something I just do on a Sunday, but it's found in every nook and cranny of my life. Sexuality, politics, social media, the economy, war, nationalism, all have some kind of religious angle to them. And as a communicator, I want to find the stories that can help people understand this part of our society that is so important to so many. Hi, I'm Dennis Sanders, and I'm the host of Church and Maine. Church and Maine is a podcast about the journey of faith and where it intersects with modern life. I look at faith with a journalist's eye, asking the who, where, what, why, and how religion affects some of the major issues of the day. Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church in Maine podcasts at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you. Ah, welcome back to Herd Tells. Talk some economics. Every time we talk economics, we go get an actual economist. What a concept, huh? And this here be one of those certified bona fide economists, fellas. He works for a government agency, but these are his and his alone opinions. We love having him on. He's one of our favorites. And because I know it annoys him greatly, I will call him Dr. Stephen Popick. How are you, sir? Ah, uh, it's not so bad. I'm doing great today. It's a beautiful Friday. A little bit chilly here in D.C. Hey, you show up in a collared shirt. We're actually going to give you the nomenclature. You look halfway professional today, my friend. <laughs> um, uh, to, to be fair, I have a work meeting after this, so I need to look professional. Yeah, every now and then I'll be I'll be dressed up doing one of these, and somebody's like, "Why are you wearing a tie?" It's like, "Well, I had TV. I had a TV hit right after that, so I had to like dress up or some stuff." <laughs> so I'm dressed up on Hertel. You know, I got a media hit right after, or right before, or something like that. All right, brother. Hope you're having a good New Year. New Year, same problems. I want to start here. We talk every time you come on here, I talk about like the numbers and how this just spins our head and explain. I think we need to just start with some basic building blocks of how an economy actually works, because we hear bits and pieces of the news story and we don't put them all together. We know the financial success for a person in life has a very basic formula to it. Vaguely, there's some exceptions, but the rule is education, job, housing. That's the three-legged stool for financial success, give or take. Now, there's other factors and there's stability and what kind of career and whatever, whatever. But those are the three things, right? Well, we have a weird labor market and we have a housing crisis that we don't really want to talk about outside of, you know, the nerdosphere that keeps bringing it up and trying to get it into the conversation. Yep. If we're going to have a healthy economy, at some point, we need to talk about these basic building blocks, things like housing and not just the unemployment number but uh, employment that can get folks into the housing, which gives them equity, which is much more important than income equity, because that continues. This is the basic stuff of economics. We don't spend a lot of time talking about even among economists. So here, let's, let's, let's break down one thing you didn't say that was important about housing, right? If there's jobs over here, people that are over here need to go somewhere and potentially live near where the jobs are. Now, there are the remote jobs these days, but let's talk about the vast majority of workers that are not working remotely or working from home, right, to, to, to that extent. Um, solving the housing problem means that we have better labor mobility to go to places where the jobs are. And without that, you don't have a well-functioning labor market. Right, because the people that you want to have working in your city 
can't get to your city because your city doesn't have housing or the housing is way too bloody expensive. And the, the truth is, you know, this is not a national level solution. Uh, it's not a national level solution in, in the UK. It's not a national level solution in Japan. It's not a national level solution in the United States. There are things that the federal governments of those countries and others can do to nudge things into the right way, to allow for more building, to allow for more density options, um, et cetera. But these are fundamentally things that happen at the local level with our local politicians, you know, the folks that actually do things that we never hear about. Um, and it's these local level decisions that oftentimes are preventing um, the development of housing or the types of housing that our cities and countries and counties need. Yeah. And let's talk about the local part of that real quick. San Francisco legendarily has some of the strictest building codes in America. It's really hard to build something new in San Francisco, not just because it's extraordinarily expensive, but because and the earthquake part. And the earth, and look, that's Which something they don't. Talk, yeah. That's something they don't talk about. You have to build something much differently there because of the earthquake stuff. If you build on the beach, you got to build at hurricane strength. That's part of it. But they have super strict building codes. Them, yeah. They have strict building codes. They have historical building codes where you have to fit into the neighborhoods. All this, it's really hard to build there. Then you go to like a suburb of Houston where there's almost no rules. Yeah, and you well, can build almost anything Fran, you want. Most of the residential land in San Fran is zoned single family. Right, so you can't build multifamily housing or a can't even build a housing. you can't even build a duplex that looks like a single family house. Right, which are very, of those. which are very popular in a lot of urban, ex-urban, suburban places now because you can just it's it's well easy to manage and it's cost effective and it gives people things. The point is that's just one example. We have all these metropolises. We have all the suburban land, county, not can't like I live just past the county line. So I'm in the county, not the city. That's a huge difference in property tax, even though it's only about a thousand yards in a straight line. These things are why this gets so complicated. Where do we talk about the local solutions, though? Because, look, we have a national and international audience here. They're all like, well, what do we do about it? Is it a legislative thing? Is it a zoning thing through your councils? Where do we even start with this stuff? I think where you start is you have to be involved in whatever your local board or local committee that makes the zoning decisions for your jurisdiction, your area that you live in, to be actively involved in those. So those, you know, like in my in my city of Alexandria, we have, you know, um, a zoning board and they will look at zoning changes or approve variances to zoning. And so it's part of what I do is I try to stay abreast of the developments, the applications that are there. It's all on a website. It's all easy to find. The meetings are every, you know, third Wednesday of the month or whatever, you know. Um, and you look at that and, and literally I have a letter that I send to that planning board and to the city council on occasion to support initiatives that build the types of housing that we need that will allow more people of more varied income levels and more varied skills to live in our city. Because I think that that makes our city more vibrant. Right. So, now you're, and you're a DC area. So let's just be blunt here. Another expensive yes. area, but an area that needs a very young workforce. 
they need a lot of those recent college grads for a lot of reasons, not just the government jobs, but the support jobs. And you need a lot of labor. You need a lot of non-college education labor for all the supporting areas. That's where this problem gets bad, because now how do you have housing that's hard enough to build in the first place, but you got to get it affordable enough to have the workforce you need to support the city that you're building it in. So your workforce that the you, right way? Your, so also, so the workforce that you need, you know, doesn't have to commute two hours to get into your city to, to work there, you know? Um, yeah, and, but see, but that's, that's a local level. And the thing is, you know, with a lot of these issues, the voices of no can have a lot more power, right? Because it's the, the so-called detrimental effect, if there is one, right, is concentrated amongst a very small sliver of individuals that have a very big um, incentive to yell and scream for the vast majority of the population in the in the jurisdiction, it would either have no benefit or slight marginal benefit, right? So folks don't take the time because it's not worth it to them at an individual level to let the city know, hey, we wanna, we know it doesn't really do anything for us, but we know it does something for the folks that would be, you know, serving us coffees in the morning as we go into work. <laughs> You know, so they don't write their letters. So the only thing that the city council has is a lot of angry people. Um, so think about that. Like it's like that, that. That's a that's a classic problem of where the benefits are and where the costs are. So if the costs are isolated to just a few individuals and the benefits are spread out, even if the benefits are dramatically in the aggregate out, you know, outweigh the costs, it's the people that are benefiting. You know, don't. Don't participate. Don't speak up. Don't make those uh, cases, right? And this that's just our human nature. Yeah. Steve so topic it, joining us here. Let me not to interrupt you. Let me interrupt you and no ask problem. you this question, though. With that, this is not a new problem. No. The what the wealthy, by and large, wealthy people own homes and own land. So you have the wealthier people are always going to want to protect their investment, understandably in their land and their property that includes property values that includes what kind of neighborhood it is all that sort of stuff they're the haves the people needing housing are the have-nots but the housing is a problem this is a very 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 old problem it is um you know and we've made we've, we've made changes in this country to try to um allow more people to have housing I mean, keep let's keep in mind go back a hundred years housing was you know land right was the pro the property of the very rich? Uh, you were middle class. You did not own your place that you lived. You did not own the land. We were one of the first countries, if maybe not the first, but definitely the first few, to push over, push for this thing called the thirty-year mortgage. Right before that existed, you had to buy a house and have it all paid off within five to ten years. You know, which which was beyond the capacity for pretty much, you know, the vast, vast, vast majority of American households. So now we get this 30 year mortgage backed by the government to, to some degree uh, that becomes an option that does allow for homes to be more affordable to a larger swath of the population. That is why today you have uh, probably about a, I think it's around probably a 66, 67, 68 percent home ownership rate, right? So the median U.S. household owns their house or at least has a mortgage on their house. This is in contrast to a lot of other countries that don't 
have the 30-year mortgage and you can find those and they still have sort of those more antiquated systems and it's more traditional for, for, for people to rent. Now, those countries where it's more traditional for people to rent have other vehicles to allow people to build wealth um, and their housing markets aren't completely as wackadoodle as ours. How do we talk about this? Stephen Popovnik joining us, economist. How do we talk about this as the problem it is? Because we've talked about it before. The housing crisis is not of the last few years. It's not of the last administration or this administration. This has been going on for a while, but it's going to be a huge problem going forward. Here's the thing. We know this is right up your alley. This is what you do for a living. Housing is used for an indicator for a reason, because if you build a house, it's not just the house that the family's going to live in. It doesn't matter if it's an apartment or a townhome or a multifamily or single family home. It's the same formula. There's something like 26 trades go into building one house. There's all the materials that go in this. There's the economic, all those, uh, all those trades jobs everybody wants to keep getting more and more of. That's an indicator of whether those are doing well or not. Are we building houses? Because you got to have all those trades to build a house. So that's an indicator. And all the things that you go to the department stores or Amazon to buy to fill up said house. Right. So housing is such an indicator. Why do we have this cognitive disconnect of going, we have a housing issue. There's no way this isn't an economic issue going forward if you don't fix your housing issues as you go along. We just, I know an economist can do that, but in the discourse, we can't seem to put those two things together. Uh, we can't, again, you know, it is, um, you have folks who like the neighborhoods that they have, who like the places where they live and they don't like to see them change. And that's human nature and that's understandable. But when you don't want to see something change, uh, as an, as an example, we have a development here in Alexandria, um, that was primarily for, you know, some of our lower income families. And the owners of that property wanted to expand it, make it a little bit taller, add two more stories to it, essentially. And the, the folks right around where that development was, it's a very nice development, um, pitched a fit saying it would you know, change their property values. You know, it would alter their views. They'd be more shade. You know, it would, it would be not as good, right? Um, and so it was the, you know, you, you, Someone who's two miles away doesn't even know about that, you know, but again, like that, that's the, I think that ultimately is the issue. The, the costs are borne, right, by, by a very small silver folks that have a very big incentive to, to, to be upset. Um, and I don't even know if they're right to be upset, but, but they can be, they are upset. They have reasons for it. I understand those reasons. And then the benefits are spread more diffusely. That, that's all. This is a problem as old as government. Yeah, Stephen from Poverty joining us. There's a couple of hard and fast formulas in economics. Uh Things like population growth for economic growth. You got to have a birth rate or you got to have an immigration. One or the other, your economy shrinks. That's just a formula. Like there's no getting around that. Sort there's, of technically. All right. Don't get your PhD. Yeah. Generally speaking, yeah. Population growth is economic growth. Population growth is economic growth. We have things like the dollar goes up and down in value. That affects things. That's a formula. Yep. 
that, that's true. Do we have a basic formula that people can base off of with housing? Because things like unemployment and all that, but housing seems to be something that's just one thread that goes through just about everything when we start talking about economies. Is there a formula that we can talk about and kind of apply to some of this to get it down to my level that I can understand it? from your level, the policymakers who study this thing and understand it through and through? That's a good question. So what I would say for, for someone like you, what I would focus on is a housing affordability measure. It's just a simple no number, right? You know, what percentage of people could, could afford, you know, the set amount of, of, of house, right? How affordable is housing? And the National Association of Realtors has a number, National Association of Home Builders has a number, I'm certain there's a myriad number of government agencies that have a number two, right? But if I'm looking to understand how the housing market is working, is working, I'm looking at housing affordability, right? So can people afford to buy a house? That's, a, you know, and of course that's affected by the size of houses, what goes into them and also what the interest rates are, right? So we know, um, and how many houses there are that are being sold. Like, so we knew that, couple of years ago, right before COVID, we actually were having pretty decent housing affordability numbers. We still had a shortage of housing, but interest rates were so low that housing was more affordable to folks. That's good. We've seen a, a spike up in the lack of housing affordability, so to speak, uh, in the last couple of years, thanks to uh, one continued declines in, in, in inventory uh, being available. Obviously, house prices went up a lot and interest rates went up. Um, and so that just means people are more locked in. Right. So so if I was focused on something, I would just look at, you know, a standard housing affordability, housing affordability metric and see how that's changing over time. And, you know, we could pick a measure to say, you know, we think that the housing market was well functioning back here at this date. So that's our benchmark. And we're watching us if we're above our benchmark or below our benchmark. That might be the easiest heuristic for, for someone to look at. Yeah. Stephen Povnick. Economist extraordinaire talking how, okay, we've been talking about messaging and the economics is a hard thing to message. On a good day, it's still hard to message. However, I've been critical of this particular presidential administration, the Biden administration, because I don't think their messaging on the economy has been very good at all. It's been bad, in my opinion. It's not been cohesive whatsoever. The president has come out and said this, and I'm going to quote him here. He's talking about uh, 3.5 trillion. This is a Reuters article. I'll link to it. 3.5 trillion in manufacturing technology over the next decade. We all know how investment over the next decade sound bites work out, but that's neither here nor there. Here's the quote. Quote, this is not about getting to a level spot. This is about going to a whole new plateau. We're the only country in the world who's come out of the crisis stronger than we went in. What the hell is the president talking about? So are you keying off the word plateau there? Here's the thing. I understand on an economic graph that there's plateaus. The problem is, in a post-Jimmy Carter America, nobody in America wants to hear the word plateau and economy at the same time, no, even we, if it's in a non-negative sense. Is that fair to say? We want to hear it's always sunrise in America again, to, to quote another president, right? Fair, but, but this is a comms thing, not a math yeah. problem. Do you want to say plateau to an economy that is actually not that bad on paper, but does have some dark spots. But the yeah. perception is that it's a mess and the messaging is what bridges those two things together. No, no, he I'm not sure this is the no. way to go about this. I wouldn't have called this a plateau. I would say that we're climbing back up the ladder again, right? That That is what we're doing. And Biden is correct in the second part, like flip it. We're the only country in the world who's come out of the crisis stronger than we went in. We can argue that, 
but there are facts supporting that that statement that that we have come out of the covid uh recession in a much better overall position than most countries that are most similar to us right and we, you can make the the very coherent and cogent argument there are some factors that work against that but as i said like you you can make this argument and it's supportable so i would i would have led personally with the, the the second sentence and just left it at that um you know what he's talking about here is the there we just had an employment report drop literally this morning about two hours ago um and it was a very good employment report it didn't uh we weren't uh it, we didn't unexpectedly miss expectations we unexpectedly, unexpectedly. Went, that went beyond expectations and had a better uh job report than what we that we expect than, than 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 what we might have been thinking about we also positively saw that wage growth which i know people want wage growth but wage growth that's sort of been off of its own kilter uh adding to inflationary pressures in the economy we saw wage growth sort of coming back down and the picture that you can paint from from this is it looks based on the last couple of months that we might be getting back to uh, a three percent inflation rate economy you know one that's sort of normal uh one with a normal well-functioning labor market, you know, getting back up to almost where we are, where we were from the, uh, at the beginning of the, co of the COVID crisis, you know, so like this is a very positive jobs report. Jobs were up in a lot of different industries. And, and I said, wage growth was starting to come down a bit. Um, so we're starting to see those inflationary pressures tamper out. Could this be the mythical soft landing that the Fed's been trying to engineer? It could be. Now, let's talk about the soft landing. We talked about this before. There's as much danger in coming off of inflation as there is in going up in inflation if it's not handled correctly, though, is there not? So you're talking about, about disinflation or deflation, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, here's the problem with deflation. You want to keep saving there. You want to keep saving because, um, you know, and so like that means there won't be as much investment potentially in the economy. So, yeah, there's always dangers, right? I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a reason why a lot of countries in the world, Andrew, have this inflation targeting approach for their central banks. And we don't have that in the U.S. We don't. Our central bank only ha has a dual mandate on inflation and employment. But there's not an, like a typical inflation target. Right. But but sort of unspoken, there's a general agreement that inflation at about two to three percentage points is kind of the sweet spot. So you sort of want to get back to that. But, you know, the, keep in mind that what the Fed's doing, Andrew, is. They're using uh, a, a lever that takes a lot of time to get moving to pull it down or pull it up and a lot of time to stop the motion. So they're they're trying to predict where we're going to be six months, nine months from now and where they're making their decisions. You know, so that's the danger. Right. If they misread the situation, they keep the they keep the lever moving up a little bit too long or moving down too long. Then we overshoot or undershoot and we don't we don't hit what we want to be. Nick. Okay. The big question everybody's concerned on, same question as last year, New Year, same problems, right? You've heard this once or twice in your life as an economist. SSDD. Are, 
Are we going to have a R word? Is there going to be a recession in 2023? Okay, so I hate this word. I know. And I'm going to give my usual diatribe here. I know. We could have a recession with negative 0.1% GDP growth. We would not have a recession with 0.1% GDP growth. It's literally the same economy, right? So we shouldn't be keying. I, I, I get why we key on it. It's an easy metric. But I, I think, you know, an economic slowdown has costs just like an economic recession has costs. There are different degrees of it, you know. So we shouldn't think about it as like, could we, if we avoid the recession, woo, play the trumpets. That's great. But if we avoid the recession by barely avoiding it, there's still issues. So could we have a recession? Yes, absolutely. Could it be mild? Yes, absolutely. We've had recessions in the past that I think the average American was not even aware we had a recession, right? Uh, thinking of like 1998 or around that time, we had a, we had a mini recession. It was kind of a blip. I don't think most people are registered on the at the, at the household level. Um, you know, but we could, you know, certainly, you know, have a, a, a uh, you know a deeper one, but I think that's relatively unlikely right now. The data are showing that if we're going to have a recession, it's going to be quick and mild. Of course, we're we're assuming that everything else right now holds, current trends hold, nothing else goes crazy. COVID 3.0 doesn't take off, Russia doesn't invade yet another country, all those other things that can happen in the world. An asteroid doesn't hit. Who knows? There is one of those things, though, that is happening right now that has changed things last. China is reopening. That is going to change things in the global economy and for the U.S. economy as China reopens from their COVID lockdown. Yes. Yeah. So that that is a for the global economy. That's a positive thing. Right. That means uh, means that, for example, maybe my maybe my uh, my uh, component for my sleep number bed that's malfunctioning actually comes over on a ship. Um, this is a very first world of first world problems there, Captain Privilege, but point noted. I just, you know, personal example of how the supply chain crises are still going on are still affecting people. Um, but yes, that would, that would have a benefit that would help accelerate economic growth across the world uh, with China reopening because those goods would be more easily you know, flowing out of China and their production would be, would be occurring. So yeah. it's, it's definitely better to have the... Better for the economy to be reopening. Don't know if it's better for health. Uh, we'll see if they have to shut down again because their COVID policies and their uh, COVID vaccine uh, do not seem to be particularly effective. Yeah, just one of those great unknowns that make economics so interesting and sexy and fun, right? Stephen Popovnik, our economist friend. I, I appreciate. Yeah, I appreciate that. See, I want to do that when we talk to you, though. Like, talk about those basic building blocks. So when some see China's a big thing. But if we don't talk about those building blocks and we don't talk about the state of the economy, then you can't really talk about how China does or does not affect it. It all goes together. And that's why we keep having you on to explain this as we go along. Appreciate your time. Let folks know where they can follow you, what you have going on and how they can keep up with you until the next economic headline that we have to get you to come in and explain it to us. Uh, at some point, I'll start writing for uh, Ordinary Times again. Uh, one of my New Year's resolutions. We'll see how long I keep it. Like most Americans, I'll probably fail at some point. Sorry, Andrew, in advance. Uh, I, I, I'm also, you know, always, you know, watching what's happening on Twitter. As long as Twitter still exists, you can find me at Moto Economist on Twitter. 
where I do share uh, from a time to time takes on housing and sort of how the, the U.S. market is going. Ah, Stephen Pobnick, always appreciate your time, my friend. You explain this well so that even I can understand it and you usually give me stuff to go look up and read on, which I will now go and do. So I try to keep up with you better next time. Thanks for the time, sir. Happy to do it, man. You too, sir. All the music on her tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Folks, you've heard of Ethan Brown on the Hurt Tell Show a couple of different times, but if you're interested in learning about how to discuss things like climate change without all the politics and doom and gloom, head over to his podcast, The Sweaty Penguin. Sweaty Penguin is a late-night comedy-style climate podcast working to add nuance, critical thinking, humor, and hope to the climate conversation. they got over 100 episodes already, breaking down weekly news stories and specific topics from the vanilla to the ADHD to the international accountability to orangutans. Yes, I know, it's a comedy thing, so just go with it. But each time, exploring different ways we can make progress on these issues while still helping the economy, health, security, and everything else we care about. Feel overwhelmed, exhausted, or excluded by today's climate change discourse? This is the podcast for you. Find The Sweaty Penguin wherever you get your podcasts or at www.thesweatypenguin.com. Save a little more this month. Chime checking accounts have features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe and no monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at chime.com slash goals24. Banking services and debit card provided by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. SpotMe eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply.